Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Luke chapter 19 verse 45. Then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching the people in the court in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say, from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Thank you, Peter. Do keep your Bible open at page 1054, Luke chapter 19. And as we begin, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, tonight we want to see Jesus. Please show him to us in all his beauty and power and speak into us words that give life for the glory of your name. Amen. On the 18th of November 2010, I remember standing outside Firth Courts, part of the University of Sheffield, just down the road. Uh, I wasn't by myself, there was a large crowd and everyone was waiting eagerly, jostling for the best position, cameras at the ready. Uh, There were even people lining up on the other side of the road waiting to get a glimpse. All the dignitaries were out, the vice-chancellor of the university there in all of his fancy robes, all of his colleagues all waiting. We waited around for a while and then pulled up a glass-roofed car. A smartly-dressed man opened the door and out-stepped Her Majesty the Queen. There she was, all dressed in red and a matching hat and black gloves. I had to Google it. I'm a man. I don't remember what women are wearing. Um, She waved politely, as she always does. The the, the crowd cheered. And then she began shaking hands and smiling and thanking people for what they were doing. I imagine that a similar scene greets her almost everywhere that she goes. It's the sort of behavior you'd expect from a queen. It's the sort of behavior you would expect from her subjects. And I suppose it's the sort of behavior we might have expected when King Jesus turned up to his temple in Jerusalem, the national cathedral of Israel. Smiles, red carpets, curtsies and handshakes. But King Jesus makes a very different entrance and receives a very divided response. Take a look at chapter 19, verse 45. 
Then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Driving them out, it says. He didn't ask them to politely head towards the exits or say, your services are no longer required. I'm so terribly sorry. He says, get out now. He's angry. Now we read in the other gospels that he was throwing over tables and forcing people out. But this wasn't just a blind rage. Look back at verse 41. We read there that Jesus was deeply grieved. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. This was an anger driven by grief, a grief driven by love. Love for Jerusalem and all that she should have been but wasn't. So in this grief-driven anger, he entered the temple and drove out the sellers, saying to them, verse 46, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple had become corrupt. The place of prayer had become a place of financial profit. So he drove out those selling the animals for sacrifice. It was a chaotic scene, doves flapping around and sheep bleating and running all over the place, coins clattering to the ground. And after a few minutes of this, as the last seller scampered out of the courtyard and quiet began to descend on the temple, Jesus stood up to speak. And verse 47 says, every day he was teaching at the temple. This was nothing short of a temple takeover by Jesus. He had assumed the authority to cast out those selling and he had assumed the authority to teach the people he was taking over the temple from those who had been in charge. And you can imagine how they must have felt about that, only you don't have to imagine, it's there in verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Now it says there they were trying to kill him. The sense of that word is a bit more general really. It means they were trying to ruin or destroy him. They were trying to take Jesus down. You probably think all the big leaders with all of their power wouldn't find that so difficult. He's only one man. And yet, says verse 48, they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The crowd was transfixed by Jesus. Like a thirsty person trying to catch every drop from a bottle, they hung onto him listening, trying to catch every word. The temple leaders want to take Jesus down, but they can't for fear of the crowd who love him and might turn on them. It must have driven them nuts. They were watching a temple coup d'etat and they were powerless to stop it. The king has come and taken over his temple and receives a divided response. Some see him as a threat to silence, others as good news to hang on to. Now these verses, verses 45 to 48, are an introduction to the whole of chapters 20 and 21, where Jesus is in the temple. And throughout these two chapters, we see Jesus teaching, the temple leaders trying to ruin him, but the support of the crowd stopping them. It's repeated over and over. And this section ends in chapter 21, verse 37. Just turn over one page and have a look at that. Chapter 21, verse 37. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So do you see how at either end of this temple section, 
there's a general statement about Jesus' teaching. There in 2137, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And back in our passage this evening, chapter 19, verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple. And in between these two general bookends, Luke zooms in and takes us to specific examples. And we're going to see this over and over again in the coming weeks. Jesus teaching at the temple, the leaders trying to take him down, but being too scared by the, of the crowd to stop him. And here we get the first example of it. And so when we get to chapter 20, verse 1, we're not talking about every day anymore. Do you see? We're talking about one day. We're going from general to specific. We started with a satellite view, but now we're coming down to street level. And we're standing in the crowd as chapter 20, verse 1 says, One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, which literally means good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. And as we see them marching across the courtyard towards him, the reader of Luke's gospel will be thinking back to chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus predicted his death at the hands of exactly this collection of people. He said, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and must be killed. So as they get closer and closer, we're thinking, here come Jesus' murderers. We might well be looking for the glint of a knife or the shaft of a spear, but we won't see it. Because he's coming not to assassinate his body, but his character. Verse 2, tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He's taken over the temple, assuming the authority to drive out those selling and to teach the people. And the temple leaders want to know, who are you? Who gave you this authority? But don't be fooled into thinking that this is an innocent question. It's an attempt to cast doubt on Jesus. And it's not a legitimate inquiry because they've already got the information they need to answer it themselves, as Jesus will point out in a few moments. With every passing day, this is the issue, with every passing day, they could see their authority draining away to Jesus and they wouldn't stand for it. They had to preserve their power. They had to silence Jesus. Who gave you this authority, they said. And as we hear them ask the question, it does certainly seem like a smart move. Jesus didn't have the backing of any of the religious experts or scholars, so how could he respond? Take a look at verse three. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And with that question, the tables were dramatically turned. But it wasn't as though Jesus was dodging their question. You know, I, I used to think about this uh, account, uh, that Jesus was simply asking them any old kind of tricky questions so that he could say, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I won't ask you, answer, answer yours. And that he might just as easily have said, which came first, the chicken or the egg? But think for a few moments and you can see that Jesus wasn't dodging their question at all. You see, the answer to Jesus' question would have given them the answer to theirs. Jesus basically asks them, was John the Baptist a prophet from God? Because if he was, they'd have to accept John's teaching about Jesus, which included that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you see? Who gave you this authority? Well, John the Baptist did. Do you want to disagree with him? Now they're the ones on the back foot. 
So verse 5, they discussed it among themselves. Now, if you've ever watched the TV show Dragon's Den, you'll know this moment very well. A couple uh, walk into the Dragon's Den, they make their pitch to the dragons, the wealthy business people, and they ask them to make an investment. And if they're lucky, they say, yeah, we will make you an investment. Here's our offer. And then the two people seeking the investment will go to the back of the room and they'll discuss it together and you'll see them leaning in, maybe you'll catch the occasional word and see them shaking their heads or nodding and making gestures as they thrash out what their response should be. All the while, everyone else is waiting quietly, patiently to see what they're going to say. Well, that's the scene here in the temple. Jesus and the crowd watch as the temple leaders step aside, huddle together and start whispering. But we can hear what they're saying. Look at verse five. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Now just notice for a moment there what they don't say. It's very telling what they don't say. They don't say, you know, that's quite a good point that Jesus is making. And they don't say, you know, guys, maybe we're being a bit inconsistent here. They don't say that because, tragically, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in its consequences. If we say one thing, we'll look foolish. If we say the other, we'll be lynched. No concern about the truth there, just the consequences, do you see? These temple leaders aren't interested in pursuing the truth. They're interested only in preserving their own power. And so how do they respond? It's there in verse 7. We don't know. We don't know. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. You are always so welcome among us. And secondly, can I invite you to let these temple leaders serve as something of a quiet challenge to you? You see, many people's response to the Christian faith is guided not so much by its truth as by its consequences. They're less interested in questions like, who was Jesus? Did he really die and rise again? But are more interested in, how would being a Christian change my lifestyle? You see the difference? One's concerned with truth, the other with the consequences of that truth. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment that anyone who isn't a Christian isn't searching for truth, but I am saying that, and actually this is true as much for Christians as for anyone else, that what we accept is true is often influenced by what we want to be true. If a judge is taking part in a trial and they realize that they have a financial interest in whether the trial goes one way or the other, they'll have to say to the court, sorry, I have an interest in this case, I'm not impartial, I'll have to stand down and let let another judge take my place. That's called recusing yourself. It's what you do when you have an interest in a case and you're not impartial. But when it comes to considering the claims of Jesus... All of us have an interest in the outcome, and none of us can recuse ourselves. No one can consider him impartially, but we all must consider him. And that's why one person puts it like this. They say, if we're skeptical, we need to be skeptical of our skepticism. Are my decisions being guided by my desires? All that said, if you want to consider, as impartially as any of us is able, the claims of Jesus. And if you want to have the opportunity to ask questions, that could not be more welcome here. 
You've already heard this evening about Christianity Explored. Come. We'll do all of the above as well as giving you a cooked meal. Now, it's telling that most people who come for one week of Christianity Explored stay for all the rest. It's because we have a good time together, so join us. Do sign up on those cards that I waved around earlier in the service if you'd like to. Well, let's go back to the temple courtyard. John's baptism, where was it from? We don't know, replied the temple leaders. And it is for them an embarrassing reply. They've already rejected John the Baptist. Everyone knows it, but they're too afraid to admit it. They confidently marched over to Jesus, planning to put him on trial. But now they find themselves in the dock. Well, they're suddenly all meek and agnostic about it. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Of course they do know, but they're refusing to say. And so Jesus says to them in verse 8, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If they won't follow the evidence they've already got, he won't give them more. Now just for a moment, compare these temple leaders with Jesus. Jesus is one man standing alone in a hostile place, defying the religious establishment. And every time he opens his mouth in love to teach the people and preach them the gospel that they need to hear, he's taking his life in his hands. And he knows that ultimately, eventually, his words will cost him his life. But in contrast, the temple leaders don't speak the truth because they're worried about self-preservation. Who's the real leader? It's ironic that they're questioning Jesus' authority when theirs is in tatters. They're too cowardly to lead for fear of the people they're supposed to be leading. They're more interested in financial profits than in prayer. They're more interested in power than in the preaching of the gospel. Their authority is shot. Compare them with Jesus. Who's the real leader? Jesus is a man I can respect and follow. Christian, when you see the world around throwing accusations at the God of the Bible, trying to discredit him in order to avoid his kingship, see how much better your leader is. Who would you rather follow? When Jesus comes as king to his temple, he receives a divided response. Some see him as a threat to silence. Others as good news, as gospel to hang on to. Whether you think of yourself as a Christian here tonight or not, can I ask you this? How do you, reject, how do you react to Jesus' claim to be king in your life? To his claim to have authority to drive out and to teach? Is he a threat to silence or good news to hang on to? Consider again the temple leaders. This wasn't the first time that they had come across Jesus or that Jesus had come to the temple In chapter two, we read that he was presented there as a baby boy while still in arms, and he was welcomed and celebrated. And he came year after year after that. And then we read that when he was 12, he spent three days in the temple courts talking with the teachers of the law, listening to them, asking them questions. But also, amazingly, he was asking, he was teaching them and giving them answers himself. It says in chapter two, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. A 12-year-old boy giving answers. They were impressed by him, to say the least, and he grew in favor with the people. They loved him when he was just the boy in the corner, cute, fresh-faced, and precocious. But now, as Jesus returns to the temple as an adult, as a king, well, now he's a threat, and they want to silence him. 
You and I, do we tolerate Jesus as the cute boy in the corner but oppose his coming as king? Do we accept him as a feature of our lives, perhaps even a feature with a lot of influence over what we do, but stop short of receiving him as our king, as our king? Do you say in your life, this far Jesus, but no further? Even if you're a mature and long-standing Christian here, someone who gives generously to church, who serves regularly, even a small group leader, can I ask you this, how far do you let Jesus in? Do you limit his authority in your life? Do you welcome his rule over most things, but not my career, not my marriage, not my bank account, not my family, not my sex life, not my friendships, not my grudges, not my free time, not my home? Not those things, Jesus. When he comes as king, do you see him as a threat to silence or good news to hang on to? You see, the Christian message isn't, this is true, so deal with it, folks. The Christian message is gospel, which means good news. Jesus came, chapter 20, verse 1, preaching the gospel, the good news. Jesus is good news. He's good news. So let me show you why Jesus is good news. And it's all wrapped up with why he's here in the temple. When Jesus came and took over the temple, it wasn't to restore it, but to shut it down. The temple was the everything of religious life in Israel. It was the dominant building on the skyline. It was the center of their cultural life and identity. People came there to pray, to make sacrifices for their sins, and it symbolized God's dwelling among them. It was everything. And so Jesus brought an earthquake to the religious life of Israel because he came to shut down the temple and to provide a new way for people to worship. He would be the new temple. The focus of the whole religious existence of Israel had been on the temple, but now it would be on Jesus. Jesus is the new way that we can access God in prayer. Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins. Jesus is God dwelling among us. And that's good news for you and I. Because it means we can pray to God right here or on the bus or when we're lying in bed without having to travel to a special place. It's why in a few minutes we won't gather around an altar to make a sacrifice, but round a table to remember one. And it means God can dwell among us now, wherever we are, by the Spirit of Jesus. The time of the temple is over because there's a new way to worship and his name is Jesus. He sets us free from the trappings of religion and gives us unfettered access to God the Father through him. Jesus is good news for all nations and generations, but is that how you see him? A few years ago, I was sitting in my parents' living room. They had an open fireplace. I can't remember quite what I was doing, but I was sitting there, and suddenly a bird fell down the chimney and into the living room. Uh, I don't know who was more shocked, but we were both pretty shocked. And it started flapping all around the living room, um, spreading soot and dust everywhere. It very effectively redecorated the lounge. And, um, I, I, and we didn't know what to do for a few minutes, but eventually we thought we've got to catch this thing somehow. So we got a towel, 
And we thought we'd use this as a net, and we're going over to this bird and trying to kind of grab. But it would panic as we came near, and flap, 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 and go to the other side of the room. And then we'd go again, and we spent ages trying to do this. We gave up on, you know, there being any walls left that weren't black. And um, eventually, um, I mean, as it kept seeing us, I I felt very sorry for it. It, As we approached it, it must have been thinking, this is it, this is it, the end. I'm going to be smothered and killed. But eventually, we did manage to get hold of it, and we went over to the door, and, and it flew away. When we see Jesus coming near, we sometimes think he's a threat. But really, he's come to set us free. Like the temple leaders, we see him as a threat to silence when he's good news to hang on to. Maybe you see Jesus as a threat because you're in love with a particular sin. Maybe it's because you don't want him to call the shots in a particular area of your life. I don't know. But what I do know is that whenever we let Jesus further in, we find he's not come to harm us, but to set us free. When the angel announced the birth of this king to the shepherds, he said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. And friends, that's what Jesus always is. Receive him as your king. I'd like to invite the band up. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. But just before that, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, we're so foolish for seeing Jesus as a threat when he's coming to save us. Forgive us for where we've done that or even doing it now. And help us always to cling to him, our gospel, our king, our everything. For we ask it in his powerful name. Amen.